Welcome to the Where Money Meets Soul podcast. I'm Jennifer Griffith. And I'm Natasha Gaines. As two busy women juggling high profile jobs, family, friends, bills, and everything else life throws our way, we know what it's like to feel stressed out and overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And from personal experience, we also know what it's like to pull ourselves out of that place by using the right skills and tools to get our lives into alignment. Absolutely, we're here to share those same tools with you so that you can also turn your desires into reality. If you're interested in learning more about money and abundance, how to create a better work-life balance, and how to pursue your passions without sacrificing your dreams, then we invite you to join us each week to gain powerful tools to help you succeed in business and life. When money meets soul, magic will happen. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to the Where Money Meets Soul podcast. Today, we're joined by guest Deirdre Wan Short, who's a certified health coach, registered nurse, and also happens to be a close personal friend of myself. Deirdre has always worked in helping jobs as a personal trainer, a fitness instructor, an international flight attendant where we met, and now as a nurse and coach. Clearly she likes working with people. Deirdre recently decided to combine her interests and funnel them in one direction. From hospice, she took the important life lessons that she learned from the dying and crafted them into a way to help the living. And from her fitness background, she came to understand that small changes gently and easily implemented have more power than big changes. And from being a flight attendant, she learned that people are people, no matter what their background. She has now formed Carriage House Coaching, where she uses her training as a registered nurse and her passion for helping people to coach those with health issues who would benefit from habit and behavioral changes. Her coaching programs are designed to help her clients figure out what they really want from their lives and then create lasting change slowly in a safe and supportive environment. She gets her clients out of the habits and behaviors that keep them stuck and into easy habit and behavioral changes they won't even notice that they're doing. And today she's here to tell us how we can do that as well. Welcome, Deirdre. Thank you, Tasha. Hello, Jen. Hi, thanks so much for joining us. That is quite an extensive background. And I love that you are you are in a service of helping people, whatever job you've had. But how, I guess before you tell us how you got into what you're doing now, just tell us a little bit more about you. Obviously, you know, Tasha, you're well-versed in the fact that you've done everything from being a flight attendant to coaching to a nurse to all of the things. But tell us a little bit more about you. Okay. Well, I mean, clearly from, um, I'm sorry, my dog just busted into the room, like his head (laughs) in the cinder block and he used it to bust the door open, but (laughs) we'll let that be. Um, People are people and animals are animals. So (laughs) Um, anyway, sorry about that. So, um, I like change. I like um, broadening and expanding and learning. And so if you listen to that kind of lengthy bio, you do hear that I've done a lot of things. And it's because I'm constantly evolving as we all are. Um, But when something catches my interest, I want to follow it. I want to see where it takes me. And so that's kind of what I do. Um, On a more personal note, I am a mother. I have three kids. I'm married. I'm the youngest of seven. I'm, I live in upstate New York, Rochester to be precise. Um, I clearly, we know I have a dog. I also have a cat who is, um, well, they just ended up here and we kept them. (laughs) You drew them to you. I guess so. And thank God we did because they are the sweetest. They are the (laughs) best animals. So yeah. 
I think one of the things that just stood out to me, and there's so much you've done, but that you're the youngest of seven. That <laughs> just seems like such a bizarre thing to hear now. Like, you know, grandparents wow. and family members, yes, the youngest of nine, youngest of 11, and then right. seven. Like that in itself makes you a people person because you've had to learn how to deal with lots of different family dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Every individual, I presume, would be completely different one from the other. So- yeah. When I imagine it would also lend itself to your at least tolerance for change, if not like of it, right? And almost reliance on it, you know? I mean, constantly, things would have to be constantly changing in a house of nine people plus, I don't know if there were animals involved, actually. Of course there were. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They always had a dog. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you being the youngest then too, coming on the tail end of all of that as well. So yeah, that would probably lead into a lot of that too. Yeah, there was a lot of madness. I was way younger. So my parents had six kids in like a 10 year span. And then eight years later, they had me. So I have this kind of unique experience in my family in that I, in some ways was like an only child. And in other ways, I was like the youngest of a big group. There were always people around. So, um, it was, yeah, it was something yeah. <laughs> it definitely you, you say both of you made the point that, you know, it, it definitely can shape some things and absolutely did, which is true for both of you, I'm sure, because yeah. our childhood most definitely shapes um, who we are, what we believe, you know, what we do yeah, um, and our interests. Yeah. Absolutely. Which so, kind of about way does answer how you got to where you are today, right? Yeah. Yeah. In a way, yes. I mean, yeah. I, my this is funny. My parents used to hold these dinner parties when I was little. And my mom said I was always such a good little hostess because I would stand by the front door and be like, can, I'd be like five. Can I take your coat? And I'd walk around. And, you know, back then they always had these little wooden bowls that they would put peanuts in. And I would walk around and offer people peanuts. Oh, so <laughs> but, um, And then so she I, became a flight attendant. I know. I know. Also, no peanuts, though, but other peanuts. <laughs> So sweet. I love that. And then how did you, what drew you, how did you get into the hospice work, like working in hospice? This is a great question. So I will tell you that um, as a flight attendant many years, right? And then I went into working in um, fitness and I did personal training in the fitness instructor. Um, And those were the years that I was having children. And I well, I'm not, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I'll just say that I wasn't happy with my experience giving birth. I felt like um, I didn't have much options, much decisions because the, the baby wasn't coming the way he was supposed to. And so I felt like the doctor just wanted me to sign the papers and agree right away without giving me a chance to really understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up the line that I kept hearing from her was, well, it's what's best for the baby. And I was like, well, I know that I'm not going to choose something that isn't best for my child, but I'm also smart and educated and capable. You can explain this to me so that I feel like I'm making an informed decision. Um, But so it lit a fire after baby's fine, you know, everything worked out, but it did light a fire in me because I was like, I don't want people to have that experience where they question 
the their health, their decision and their own empowerment. And so that's what led me to nursing school. Um, and of course, because of that kind of experience, I wanted to become a midwife, which is an advanced practice nursing degree, kind of similar to um, a nurse practitioner or, you know, it's, it's a higher level nursing degree. And um, so I went to nursing school and ended up by a strange twist of fate or not, I don't know, working in a typical med surge floor. I wanted so bad to be in labor and delivery, but they wouldn't hire somebody fresh out of school. So you have to like do your time and then transfer. So I, I ended up on a med surge floor and I had wanted to, um, I was like, okay, I'll work here like a year or two or six months or whatever, and then I'll transfer. So um, no job was opening, none. I even, so this time passed, right? And nothing, nothing was unfolding. And so I even had an informal like meet and greet interview with the manager of the labor and delivery unit. And she was like, oh, I want to hire you, but we don't have anything. And so she's like, I'll keep your resume right here. So fast forward one day, she calls me out of the blue. She says, we have a position opening quick, go, go apply for it. It just went up. I was like, oh, okay, I'll do it. And so I went and applied for it. She called me back like I applied for it right away. She called me like five minutes after I finished my application. And she said they took the posting down because they, they said we're overhired. I was like, what? This is so weird. So, you know, um, then uh, here's a funny, this, these stories, there's a couple of stories, but they do come together at one point. So <laughs> here's another story. Um my parents, when I was probably, now remember I was the youngest and we grew up in a big house that housed all these people. Not that I had my own room, but whatever. Um, <laughs> not better. No, just kidding. I did once I was like 16 or something. But um, so they were, their kids were gone. I was a senior in college. Um, my brothers and sisters had all kind of moved on and they were like, what are we going to keep this big house for? So through, you know, whatever steps ended up happening, they ended up moving to South Bend, Indiana, mm -hmm. and they lived there for, I don't know, 20 some years, 20, 24, 22 years. I don't remember. Um, and during that time, they would come home to visit frequently, which is again in Rochester, New York. And this, they were getting older. My mom was, I think, 82 and my dad was 81. I don't know, somewhere in there, early, early eighties. And, um, my dad said, you know, these drives, these eight hour drives between South Bend and Rochester were really getting to be hard on them. So they were like, we're going to, um, make one more big trip. And then we probably won't be making this trip anymore. So they made a big trip because it was the big, like farewell. We're not going to be driving to Rochester anymore trip. Um, they were, my one brother said, you're going to have a party, right? Which it always seems to be, you're going to have a party, right? Yes. <laughs> I am. Mm -hmm. Lucky for them. I love having parties. So I was like, yes, I will. Had a party. Like you wouldn't believe it. The people that were there, people we hadn't seen in years. Aunt Betty was there. Aunt Peggy was there. Mr. <laughs> So-and-so and this Mr. And Mrs. You know, neighbors from when we were little, like all the people. And I even had some, I have a number of nephews and nieces, like about 24. Um, wow. Yeah, there's lots of them. And so even nephews and nieces who don't live locally, even they were here kind of like on a fluke, like, oh, I was just in town. So it turned out to be a fantastically fun party. Um, it was really phenomenal. 
And so my parents were staying at my sister's house that night. My, I, we all go to bed and I get woken up in the middle of the night by my brother who was staying at my house. And he said, uh, get up, dad fell. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I get up and I'm going over to my sister's house because I want to, uh, that's where my dad's staying. And turns out he had already fallen and they had gotten him up and gotten him back in bed. And then he got up again and fell again. And so they wanted me to come over. So I went over, we, he was back in bed and, you know, I was talking to him. He knew who I was. And I said, do you know who the president is? And he said, Jimmy Carter. And I said, do you know where you are? And he said, Genesee hospital, which is a, an old hospital. That's not even around anymore in this area. And then um, I asked him what year, and it was not the year that it was. So I was like, okay, not too weird because he did have a stroke in the past. And so I thought he's just disoriented. Um, I listened to his lungs. They sounded kind of junky. So I said, to, which means full crap. <laughs> That's the technical definition. <laughs> By junky, I mean full of crap. I, um, I said to my mom, you know, mom, I, I think we should just send him to the hospital. He probably just has pneumonia or maybe nothing. Maybe this is just his lungs and they'll just, he'll be gone in hours, right? He'll be gone, meaning discharged from the hospital. Sure. And um, so we get there. And by the time we get there, he had lost function in his right side and he wasn't talking anymore. And so they brought him in for a CT scan. Turns out he had a massive hemorrhagic stroke. And so there's two types of two types of stroke. There's a hemorrhagic stroke, which is a bleed. So some blood vessel has kind of broken in your brain and it's just bleeding. And then there's the embolic kind, which is the, the kind the clot, you know, that you hear a little more frequently about. Um, so he was and the thing with hemorrhagic strokes is that they're not always immediate. You know, they tend to bleed slowly. And the areas that the blood goes causes some big damage. The people who have these kind of strokes tend to have headaches, really bad headaches. Um, and so that's a little different than the other kind of stroke that we're really familiar with. The one that, you know, where they tell you, look for, you know, a droopy face or change in, in um, you know, the speech patterns um, and other things. So they were like, he's having a stroke and he showed us the pictures, the images of his brains. It was really looking damaged. And so they said, do you want to, um, we can have neurology come in, they can consult and they could possibly do something to get into his brain and try to drain some of the blood. And my mother was like, no, 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 I don't want any of that. I know he wants to, no interventions. This is, you know, he's been coming to this point. And so, short story or quickly, I should say, shortening the story. The doctor said, okay, well, we will um, enroll him in hospice here in the hospital and he'll probably be gone by the afternoon. Okay. So we all, um, he gets put into this really nice room and we were all there. If, if we, if we weren't there, we showed up and we had one brother, my California brother who didn't live who wasn't here. Um, everybody else was nephews and nieces, everybody. And so there were 30 people in that room. It was, you know, crowded and a little rowdy. And um, the things that I will tell you about this experience is that for anybody else, this was, they will, they will be able to understand what I'm saying. If, if anybody else, any other listener has been through this, but this was my first time sitting vigil. I had never um, been present as somebody died or went through the dying process 
So this was my first time. And I was like, wow. First of all, he didn't end up dying until the next morning. So it took about 24 hours. And um, my brother did end up making it. And there were a few things that were like important impressions for me that ended up kind of leading to where I ended up. One was the nurse. His name was Mike. He was incredible. I wish I knew his last name so I could like, um, you know, tell him he was incredible. He um, was one of those kind of people. He had his finger on the pulse. He knew the mood. He was able to read it and match it. So that meant he was um, when we were prayerful and, you know, my mom is Irish, my parents, my, both my parents are Irish. So there's lots of praying and, you know, Catholic stuff. And so he knew when it was a prayerful environment. He knew when we were goofing off. He knew when we were tired. He knew when he should flirt with my mom, you know, and he did. He would come over and he'd say, you know, silly little things for her and to her and she'd laugh. I mean, I just marveled at this guy and I was like, I want to be as good of a nurse as he is. He really knows. Um, he just knew what everybody needed and he did it so well and effortlessly. That was one impression is just watching a really good nurse in action. It was, it's still to this day hits me right here. Cause it was really, he was really good. Um, and then, so as we get closer to um, the end, I noticed that um, a social worker who I used to work with and she used to call it, um, she used to say, it's as if the air is thin. And I will tell you guys that I am not, um, I don't really follow any organized religion and I do have doubts, but I also have beliefs. And, um, but for lack of a better word, only because I can't think of the right word that would, that would work with everybody, I'm going to say that as he died and he got closer to death, it felt like God was in the room. Yeah. I, I don't know how else to say it. Um, I don't even know if I believe in God, but I, I know that that's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was powerful and it was special. And I was so happy to have been there. I was so happy to be with my family. I was so happy my mom got to be there. Um, I was so happy that it was a peaceful death. When he died, he looked beautiful. Um, so we left this experience and um, we also had a really fun funeral. <laughs> that was, we had a big party afterwards. And um, one, of, one of the things is, I'm just gonna quickly tell you some of the things I learned becoming hospice nurse is that people die, I really do think this. I don't, of course, I don't know if any of this is true, but I think that people choose when they die. They choose that moment. Because I've seen moms who don't want to put the burden of their death on their children wait until their children walk out and die in that moment. I've seen people who, who seem to wait for that one one you know person to arrive um and then they die. Or, you know, there's always I, I've just seen it. And with my dad, the moment he died was in the moment when we were in total hilarity. My brother was telling a joke. He was making fun of my sister. We were laughing so hard. We were crying. We were like, oh, stop, it's killing me. And that was the moment he died, which to me is an extra moment of magic because if we want to believe that people die when they want, 
What a great moment, right? To die yeah. in the middle of joy and laughter with your children surrounding you. Mm-hmm. Can't think of anything better. Right. Um, so after this experience, I decided to try out hospice. So remember how I told you there was nothing open in labor and delivery? Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, man, I'm tired of waiting. So I'm like, I'm just going to try something else. So I transferred to a different floor, which was the same floor my dad died on. Cause I, that was the hospital I worked at and, um, everything opened up, like yeah. everything lined up for me. And I was like, this is what the world was waiting for was for me to shift this way. So mm-hmm. as soon as I moved there, all the labor and delivery positions opened. All the, it's all in the world. Yeah. Like it was closed for two years. <laughs> so um, anyway, I go into hospice. I work at the hospital for on that unit for a short period of time. It took a month for me to realize, oh yeah, this is definitely where I want to be. And so I transferred to a hospice agency. In um, hospice, just, a quick little to explain how I did my work and how a lot of hospice nurses or hospice workers do their work is that hospice is governed by um, insurance. It's an insurance benefit. Um, It is not a place. It is an insurance benefit. It also is a philosophy of care. So um, in each state, the way they do hospice might differ a little bit, but it, it's a national, it's like um, Medicare. So there's no um, difference really in the national rules for hospice. Here in Rochester, there are two agencies that run hospice and 90%, it might even be more, 90% of people die at home and experience the long drawn out death process. Um, others, the other 10% die in the hospital. And of that 10%, um, it is usually something happened, like in the case of my dad, an event happened, he had a stroke. And so they're enrolled in the hospital and die there, or an event happened, they're enrolled in the hospital, and then will be sent home to die at home. Mm -hmm. So the majority of people do people who are in a hospice program do die at home. And so the care is given in people's homes. So that's the kind of hospice work I did. So I switched, I became a hospice nurse and I provided hospice care to people in their homes. Um, I, I loved it, I loved it. And here's why, because I am kind of intense. I like to talk about heavy stuff. I like to get into it. Let's just talk about it. Um, doing small talk. I mean, of course I can do it, you know, cause we all can do it, but yeah. I get bored, you know, and I'm like, after I've run through my four questions of like, so how are you? So what do you do? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, now what are we talking about? Let's get it. Let's talk about something interesting. And, you know, not everybody thinks the things I think are interesting are interesting. Not everybody wants to like explore their, their demons in like a <laughs> chat over a glass of champagne. I don't know why, but they don't. Um, so hospice gave me the opportunity opportunity to do that. And yeah. that is what I'm best at. That is my jam. And so here I am in a position where I am able to lead somebody to death 
with um, presence and compassion and care for them Mm -hmm. and help them get there in a way that they're okay and they're ready. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that job is leading the family to loss. Um, I don't know if they're ever ready. Sometimes they are. And I, I have to say that oftentimes it's a relief when people die a relief for the family member, not because they don't miss them, not because they don't love them, but because the burden of death hanging over your head is so heavy yeah. that once they die, it's like, okay, now I can grieve. Now yeah. I can go the next step. Um, so I really, um, it was like, I was right. I was right at home. I was never afraid to talk about the deep stuff. Um, I was, I, I, loved helping people get there. I um, loved being in hospice nurses pronounce, you know, I loved going over and pronouncing people Not that I loved that they died or pronouncing them, but I loved being present for the families, mm-hmm. for the pets even. Um, you know, there's lots of magical stories about the pets too. So that's what drew me to hospice. And in, in many ways, I actually think that is, and, you know, I, I love my dad. Um, but I, I never, I had a hard time connecting with my dad. He was like an, he was like a, um, he was kind of an introvert. Um, he was really philosophical, theological, um, historical, like he, he was an introvert and an intellect. And so he wasn't one to have these, um, deep, well, he did have deep conversations, but, um, he, he could be hard to connect with sometimes. Yeah. So I do think the one gift of many, I should say, that he gave me was hospice. Yeah. Because even though what I'm doing now is not necessarily hospice, I will always be a hospice nurse. Always. I will always find a way to do it. Um, it's it's just really beautiful care. And I think people deserve, no matter what, I think people deserve peace at the Mm -hmm. end. And if I can do anything to give it to them, I will. Um, So, okay. I have a question, but first I have another thought slash question. (laughs) Um, The nurse, the nurse, nurse, Mike. Yeah. um, Have you paid any attention to his name ever? Because that was the first thing that struck me. You know, I actually know his name uh somewhere in my no do you have something to say about the name mike is that what you yeah mean? this is short for michael as in archangel michael and oh. i don't coincidence i mean i i personally don't it does okay. like, of course his name was mike <laughs> right yes oh that's nice yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah right because his name's gonna be bill it just wouldn't no. <laughs> <laughs> you know and he ended up I, I do know a little bit about him he ended up leaving that was like his last um one of his last shifts at that hospital he ended up leaving and go working on the it side of um like building medical records and stuff oh, um so from, that's quite the switch <laughs> you know what and he wasn't even he didn't even work on that floor he was floated over, which happens yeah, right. in hospitals when you're overstaffed or yeah, right. Overstaffed, but say you don't have a ton of, of patients, no, they'll send you over to a floor that does have a ton of patients and needs help. So yeah. he wasn't even, he didn't even work on that floor. 
And that's because like, he was Archangel Michael. That's yeah. Why. That's why uh, he was meant to be there for you and influence you. But you know, I want to say first off, thank you, thank you for what you do because it takes a very um, certain type of person to do what you are. Not all of us can do that, right? Some of us are more emotional. We're not as direct, but also the importance for those we've all been there. You know, we've all had people who passed away. In some cases, it's worse than others, depending on if they're suffering, and to have someone attentive and offering the level of support that you do is life-changing for everybody involved. And unfortunately, there are many situations where we don't get that level of care from the care team that's surrounding us. Some people are very direct. They're kind of like, oh, it is what it is. Too bad. Deal with it and walk out of the room. I mean, paraphrasing, but you know what I mean. I do. So for someone like you, just thank you. Cause it just makes me, as you were telling your story, I was getting chills and I just like want to hug you. That's <laughs> but because it's important and it's important for those, as you said, those who are grieving or those who are afraid, because there's so much fear sometimes yeah, tied with so much fear. the end of, you know, the end of, I'm never going to see this person again, or, oh my gosh, is it painful? Whatever the fear is for the individual. So first and foremost, thank you for that. And I do have a couple of questions. You were talking about the different types of hospice, whether it's in the hospital or in the home setting. Based on your experience, is one, I don't, the word isn't more special or meaningful, but is one kind of easier? Like, do you find that people who die in their homes, it's an easier process for the family or the hospital, or does it not matter? I don't know. I don't know. Because I mean, I'm inclined to say in the home mm-hmm. only because I think if I had the choice between laying in my own bed and laying in a hospital bed of, on, in a hospital room, I'd probably be more comfortable at home. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I've heard people say that um, uh, that they wish it was over quick, that they wish something happened so they would just have died. And I hear people say, oh no, my loved one died too quick. We never got to have those final, that final stuff. Right. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty hard either way. Um, I, but I'm inclined to think that staying home is, is a little more, um, the meds that we have are, are pretty capable meds and the medications, and they are able to keep people comfortable. Um, the people who provide care for the, the person at home, know what they're doing. Um, usually the family is the caregiver. Um, so we're not staying in the home providing round the clock care. That's unfortunately not what hospice is. Um, we manage the plan of care and come and offer education support and um, all that. So oftentimes they're able to go through the process that both sides of that experience need to, to go through at home. Is it, is hospice, who's it? provided by is it provided by insurance i mean how does that work yes it is it's a so it's a medicare benefit i keep getting medicare and you know i know the difference between the two of them but i i say them interchangeably all the time wrong (laughs) wrong way Um, You're forgiven. It's, thank you. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a government benefit. And so if you are um, over 65, it's just a given benefit. If not, it's usually a rider on your private insurance. Um, and so what hospice care provides is they provide you a team of, of caregivers. Mm-hmm. There's a, it's um, 
you get a hospice physician, um, usually an advanced practice practitioner. So that would be like a, a PA or an NP. Um, you get a social worker, a nurse, and a chaplain. And chaplains are non-denominational. Yeah. You also usually get aid care. So somebody to come in, that's the person who spends a little more time in your home and helps with uh, the more hands-on stuff. And um, so it's a, it's a pretty good benefit. Um, however, if you, and this kind of goes back to your question, Jen, if you are, say your husband is 90 years old and slowly declining and you're 90 years old and the two of you live together in your little apartment or in your house, I mean, how is that 90 year old woman going to provide care for her husband, mm -hmm. right? Right. Mm -hmm that's pretty heavy. And so in that case, the hospital would be easier. Right. Um, yeah. So, and then there's other options. You could hire private pay caregivers, people who come and stay at your house around the clock mm -hmm. in Rochester. We have something pretty special. They're called comfort care homes and they're homes. They're literally houses. Um, and they take two residents at a time they provide. And the person has to be within three months of dying so that's another thing that people don't always realize about hospice. You can be on hospice care for over a year, mm -hmm. two years. Um, you just have to be showing continuous decline. So if you have a terminal condition mm -hmm. and you are um, maybe stable, maybe you're still going to work, maybe you're still driving, but you meet the criteria to be considered hospice. One of the criteria is that a doctor has to sign a certificate of terminal illness that basically says they would be confident um, in saying that this person would be dead within six months. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the only criteria. Um, there's there's more to it than that. That's kind of simplifying it, but that's that's one of the things. So somebody could still be working and driving around and still be terminally ill because they have stage four answer or something like that um so well what about if, what about if somebody gets put into hospice what's the difference there then like if they so hospice is by put into hospice do you mean sent to a place to be in yes. hospice yeah exactly. so hospice that's a very good question hospice is not a place um so there are places that provide hospice care and, you know, when you, this is, this gets very technical, um, but if they are, if they have symptoms that can be managed at home, then the insurance does not cover a stay in a facility. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's, it gets technical and of course it's insurance. So you know what that means. There's going to be all right. sorts of like yeah. rules. Yeah, but it, you know that's that. So um, it's not always perfect from the bureaucratic standpoint, um, and that is such uh, an excellent segue, actually. Although Jen, you look like you have another question. I, just, I mean, I, and I don't know which way you're going to segue, but I feel like the story you told about your dad it was so beautiful. And I do agree with you hundred percent that people do choose when they're going to die. You know, it's a moment we just had it with a neighbor. And until she got on the phone with her last son, who was unable to make it until that moment, she was not at peace to go. So I do believe that, but I feel like there have to be so many beautiful 
things you've learned from those who are passing or from their family. And I just wonder if you can share a couple more stories, maybe some of the most touching stories that you've experienced. Oh my gosh. Yes. I had, um, you know, a couple images just popped into my head uh, of faces. So one of them was um, this woman who was in a nursing home. It was actually assisted living, um, which again is, is, she lived here in this place called um, assisted living and she had Alzheimer's and she was dying from Alzheimer's. And so kind of like the way people die from any form of dementia is because they slowly decline Um, you know, maybe they'll stop eating, they'll stop being able to ambulate, they might develop pneumonia, you know, um, and it can be really rough, it can be years and years with, um, with any kind of dementia. So this particular woman was, and generally speaking, people get sleepier and sleepier, as they reach the end. So by the time that they, you know, say they sleep 12 hours out of 24 and then they sleep 16 hours out of 24 and then 20 out of 20, you know? Um, And so typically by the time people are actually in their last couple of days, uh, they're non-responsive. They're basically sleeping um, the whole time. It's probably deeper than a sleep because they, they can be woken up, but um, usually they're just really like knocked out because everything's slowing down and not really functioning anymore. So we had this one woman and remember how I mentioned that you, um, every patient gets a team, the nurse, the social work, the social worker and an aide and the chaplain. Well, um, it just, we had a couple of patients at this facility. So the social worker and I had agreed to go together at the same time. And so we went in to see this one woman and her aide was there and the, the, the nurse at the facility said, I think she's changing. I think she's getting ready to go. And we were like, okay, we'll, we'll go there first. So we went in there and she um, was awake, which was unusual. She had the biggest blue eyes I had ever seen. She had this beautiful white full hair that was like shoulder length. I mean, she was beautiful and she was so, so sweet. She had this um, little, uh, Siberian Husky stuffed dog that she would snuggle all the time. She called him Wolfie. And (laughs) so she was in bed with Wolfie and she was um, a little, little stressy. She was awake and she was fussy. Um, And so the aide and I kind of thought maybe she needed to be cleaned up. So we cleaned her up and, and kind of changed her sheets and got her comfortable. And then she started to actively die right in front of us. Um, I was holding one hand, the social worker was holding the other hand and she was awake and she was alert and she was staring at something. And I was like, what are you looking at? And she said, they're here. And I said, "Um, do you love them? And she said, I do. I I mean, she was answering my questions. This is a woman with end-stage Alzheimer's. There's often not talking at that point. And I said, you can go to them if you want. And she kind of like got quiet, you know, um, appeared to be asleep. And then um, she opened her eyes again and she was looking at us. She was kind of afraid. 
um, or I shouldn't say afraid. She wasn't. She was unsure. Like, I'll never forget those big blue eyes. And um, and I, I said to her, we will take care of everything here for you. We will talk to your daughter and we will tell her that you love her. We will tell her that you miss her and we will make sure everything gets done. And so then she closes her eyes again and she opens them again and she's looking. And I said, are they ready for you? And she said, yes. I said, you can go, you can go. And she said, can I? I said, you can. And she looked at the social worker and asked her, can, can I go? And she said, you can go. So she closed her eyes again. And then she opens her eyes again. And I said to her, you do not have to be afraid. You are, they are waiting. I don't know what's there, but I was like, they're waiting for you. They love you. You are safe. You can go. And she did. She died right there in that moment. It was like her, her soul literally just lifted out of her body. And the social worker, her name was Jack, Jacqueline. We looked at each other and we're just like, and the aide was just tears were rolling down her face. I have goosebumps reliving it. And I'm probably doing a pretty crappy job because it was amazing. It was beautiful. And I couldn't believe that I got to be there. And and then Jack and I, the social worker and the aide and I were holding hands and we were hugging and it was just the most beautiful thing. And I remember I kissed her on her forehead and it was just so, I, I, can't even convey how magical this moment was and how absolutely blessed and grateful I was to be there because what is more intimate than that? Mm-hmm. Nothing. I can't think of a thing. I can't, I, what is more intimate than that? Childbirth is pretty intimate. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, um, So this is um, something here, you know, the, whatever she was seeing, I have no idea what she was seeing or if she was seeing anything, you know, I mean, how can we really know? So there are, there is some science out there that says that, you know, the chemicals in your brain kind of take care of you as you're dying and will cause these hallucinations. So you feel comfortable. Um, Okay. So maybe. Maybe probably, I don't know. Yeah. I don't really care. Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> matter at that point. You know, it's like, as long as you're matter. comfortable and you feel a little better, doesn't matter. Also, um, I have learned through hospice that I get to believe what I want to believe. Exactly. I, don't, I don't have to believe. Um, I'm not crazy. I believe in science. Like I, I absolutely believe that there are chemicals released by your pituitary gland. Yes, I do believe that. But I also believe that there's some sort of spiritual experience here because I have felt it. Mm-hmm. I have felt it in my bones. I have felt it. I have, I, I have known some weird way when something's happening for no reason that I would know it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have decided that the people waiting for that beautiful woman was her family and her loved ones. Mm-hmm. That's who I want to believe is there. Right. And so that's what I went with. And I remember another patient, this patient I had for two years and I loved her and, um, she enjoyed, um, 
smoking crack. <laughs> she was she was very funny. I remember she had um, some issues with constipation, and I was saying maybe you should try to take some colace. And she was like, "Look it, I know you're not going to believe me, but I'm pretty picky about what I put in my body." I was like, "You're right. I don't believe you." <laughs> Sorry, nice try, but yeah, yeah nice try. Yeah. But um, and it, it, she had a very um, like I think she was on our service for two years, uh, and she was so feisty. But man, was she funny! I mean, I really loved her. I think about her every year on her birthday. So she was um, the day before she died. She was also somebody who was kind of awake and in and out. And um, as that previous social worker said to me that the air is thin. Um, Another thing I've heard people say is that the dying transition in and out Mm -hmm. um, two realms, maybe, I don't know, heaven and earth. I don't, I don't know. I don't know these things. I just know what I like to think. I like to think that they transition between being in their present self and and into being in a a state of total peace and, and love. Um, So this is what this woman was experiencing. And she was, again, the same thing, the fixed long stare. And I was like, hey, and we had a really goofy, silly relationship. I was like, what are you looking at? What do you see? And she would like break it and then look at me. And she wasn't talking much. And then she'd look right back. Um, And I remember being like, okay, this is it. She's going to be gone tonight or tomorrow. Um, and she did, she ended up dying in the morning because she was absolutely acting like somebody who was seeing the loved ones who were coming to get her again. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I want to think. So that's what I, Mm -hmm. yeah, I love it. I love these stories. I mean, they're little miracles in and of themselves, right. To be able to experience this, but I have to ask, have you experienced true miracles? Like people who were on hospice or, you know, at this stage and somehow, either recovered or were healed, like anything like that, because I feel like this is such a unique position to be in. And, you know, for the most part, I would think that they're probably, if, if they're at a level of hospice, whether at home or a hospital, they're probably about to pass. But I like to believe in miracles. And I've heard stories that things do happen, like here, mm-hmm. it was done, say your goodbyes. And the next thing you know, the person is well and alive and surviving. Have you seen that or no? I, I have, but I feel like those stories, well, gosh, I don't want to be discouraging. I have, I have seen that. Um, but it, it very, very rarely is that they are out of the disease process Mm. or that they are, um, really, truly recovered. In fact, I've never seen somebody really, truly recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, the criteria for actually being on hospice, as opposed to just being dying, which is like, there is a difference, um, is tight enough that there's not really any doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, also, people do not, they're not actively dying. There are some people who you have, who I've cared for for nine months, you know, long time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not always... Um, like they're in, they're enrolled and then they're gone. That that's actually kind of rare. Um, and the good thing about having people who are going to have a dying process that is lengthy is that you really get to go through everything and really get them prepared, mm-hmm. um, including the family. Yeah. But that being said, 
Um, we have had patients who were discharged from hospice care because they have stabilized and then moved into a healthier place. Hey everyone, did you ever wish you had a friend who was constantly supporting your dreams to make more money, pursue your passions, or live a more relaxed lifestyle? Well, here we are. Success, financial freedom, balance, whatever you want to create in your life, you can have it and we're sharing the tools to help you get there. That's right, because sometimes all it takes to achieve your goals is a tribe of people cheering you on and we're here to do just that for you. Yes, we are. When you join our tribe, every week you'll receive powerful tools to help you achieve financial freedom, create a better work-life balance, and pursue your dreams. For only $5.55 a month, you'll receive access to affirmations, mantras, guided meditations, EFT tapping sessions, articles, and tip sheets that all specifically focus on money and abundance, work-life balance, and passion and success. That's a whole lot of stuff. It is. If you visit inthelifeofzen.com to subscribe and join our tribe today. We had one guy who was 96 years old and I remember that he was having a birthday party. He was turning 96 for his birthday party, which was on September 6th, 9-6. This is why I remember it. They were just the same. And um, he was like death's door, right? Ready to go. And we had discontinued a, hand, a ton of his medications because they were there was no reason for him to be taking them anymore. He had, um, they weren't, they weren't serving him. Um, and so he had stopped taking a lot of more cardiac medications. He had stopped taking them. And those medications have a lot of side effects. And so he felt a lot better after he was taking these medications. He was so much better that we discharged him. He ended up living four more years without those cardio meds, Interesting. going to lunch with people having, you know, yeah. So it does happen. Yeah. I mean, it is what he ultimately died from, but it wasn't going to be in three months. It was four years and he had right. a good four years. Yeah. So um, yeah, those things do happen They're um, and they're nice. And depending on who it is, we discharged this one lady and she had such a sense of humor. Um, I remember one time she was really, really, really sick and she did improve. And I remember one time I was like, cause she was staying at one of these comfort care homes that I was telling you about. And I walked in and she was completely unresponsive, laying down. Her mouth was, she totally looked dead. And I was like, oh my God. So I'm looking at her and I'm like, grab my stethoscope. I think she's dead. I think I have to pronounce her. I go in and I get close. I mean, she totally looked dead. And I get over there and I'm like about ready to check. Is she breathing? Because she didn't look like she was. And she opens one eye and she looks at me. She said, well, you get me some toast. <laughs> sure. I'll totally get you some toast. Yes. <laughs> I'll get you whatever you want. Whatever yes. you want. And um, so, you know, when we discharged her, because she was such, uh, she was full of humor. She was so funny. Um, we actually gave her a, a, like a diploma that we made and we rolled it up and we presented it to her. Like you've graduated. Um, it was really sweet. And again, this is another story of an older person who stabilized, but ultimately did end up, um, dying from her disease, but she got a lot of life out of it. And actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to take that story and go right off of it because okay. 
This gets into some of the lessons that you learn when you do this kind of work, the lessons you learn about life. One of the things I started doing a couple of years ago, and I like my husband and one of my nephews just rolls their eyes all the time because it's a little touchy feely. Um, when it is, and like, I remember I said, I'm always hosting parties. Well, I am because I love it. And um, whenever it's a birthday, one of the things I do is I make them, whoever, brother, sister, whoever it is, nephew, niece, children, a meal, whatever they want. I don't, it doesn't matter if I've never cooked it, I'll make it and it'll be amazing. And it'll, whatever they want, a feast. And um, I also make everybody go around and say what they like about the birthday person or what they are grateful for the birthday person or what's the funniest thing the birthday person ever did, you know? And the reason I do this is because that patient who wanted the toast, she was staying in, um, before she came into that comfort care home, she was in a hospital-like setting. And, you know, she, I mean, she was kind of a miracle. She was really like, really on death's door and she bounced back. Um, but she was like, I don't want to die and have all these people have this big party and I don't get to hear what they say about me. And so she wanted to have a wake before she died and because she wanted to hear what everybody had to say. And so she did. And they called it an awake. And <laughs> so she had a wake and she had, she was an old Irish lady. She had Irish dancers there. Tons of booze was flowing. She had a great time and everybody did say what they would say um, at her funeral. And so I took that because I really feel like that is so valuable. We don't share enough with each other about the things we think are awesome about them, mm -hmm. like about why you are why you're with them, why you know them. Like Tasha, I've known you for almost 20 years. I and I can literally expound all the things <laughs> I love about you. Uh -huh. One of them is your endless sense of fairness. Even <laughs> when you're thinking someone's being a jerk, you will say, to be fair, they did do this. <laughs> Um, you do that. Uh, yeah, you do. You do that. You're always looking for, um, you're fair. You are endlessly fair. Um, but I think that it's so important to share with people, um, what you see in them because yeah. it, it helps them feel seen. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one of the things I did learn from hospice that in addition to, I, I believe whatever I want, because why not? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Why not? If you like it, believe it. You know. You know that first lesson lesson you're referring to. That's funny because, I, and Deirdre, you know who I'm speaking of because you knew him as well. But I lost a very good friend years and yeah. years and years ago, and I he he passed away suddenly, mm -hmm. and um, it shocked me to my core mostly because I didn't have the opportunity to be like, oh, you know, did did I really let him know how much he meant to me? So from that moment on. I got into a habit of when I got off the phone with somebody that was close, I'd be like, I love you. Bye. And I would always stop and tell somebody that I loved them. And then I'd, I'd start doing yeah. those little things like telling them, you know, just giving out the compliments that were real and not of course doing it all the time, but I do try and do that more. And now it's just become sort of habitual, but it's because of that. And that I guess would be a lesson in hospice as well, even though I haven't mm -hmm. actually, it, but yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's a true. lesson that, that death teaches you, right? Uh, yeah. uh, it's a beautiful lesson. We have a neighbor and he and his wife are kind of like the pillars of our community. You know, if there's two individuals who kind of hold the, the yeah. street together, I don't want to say the whole neighborhood, but our street together, it's them. They're, they bring everyone together. They're always there. If you need a helping hand, if you need someone to pray for you or somebody else, they're always there. And he recently had a stroke. And while he was in the hospital, you know, we no idea how it was going to go. I mean, he was talking when the ambulance picked him up, but it's like, we, you know, we have no idea. So what we did all the neighbors is we put together a video saying all of the things that we wanted to say. And he, when he, he recovered and he did well, he's in the hospital for over a month doing physical therapy. But when he came out, he said that video to me was so uplifting and encouraging because those are the things people would have said at my funeral, at yeah. my service. And I would have never had a chance to hear them. Yes. And he said how that gave him that's the extra strength that he needed. So hundred percent tell the people, I love that you do that at birthday parties. I think that's exactly what we should yeah. all do, right? Go around the table. It's like Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving, go yeah. around the table. What are you grateful for? But yeah. make it specific to that individual. Right. They deserve yeah. it. It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 And I, I will tell you, there have been some miracles in those moments. Um, yeah. Very touching, like, oh my God, really? I've uh, uh, we've made people cry in the best way. Um, and it, it's really magical. So yeah, that it's super important to make people know that you love them and that you see them, like, you know, who they are, you know, yeah. Yeah. um, also don't waste your time. Um, and this, this is another segue. So, you know, I worked in hospice, right. I told you, you know that. And then I became the manager. I became the boss of hospice and palliative care. And they're two different things. Um, hosp- the words are used interchangeably, but they're actually two different things. Um, I'll simply say that hospice is a type of palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice. Um, okay. Some of it is just is symptom management for comfort when you have another disease process. Like an example of one of the ways we provide palliative care is that we, um, people do chemo at homes. So they don't have to stay in the hospital. That's, that's a type of palliative care, you know, being uh-huh. providing, setting a situation where they're more comfortable. And um, that's an example. So I decided to move on up and I thought it was progress, right? Because when you move up the ladder, you're making progress. But when I moved up the ladder to um, as manager of hospice and palliative care, and I also was acting as interim director for a while there because my um, boss had to be out for a little while. And um, I hated it. I hated it. Um, I mean, I liked being a leader. I'd always kind of liked being, being in a leadership role. But now instead of talking to patients and doing this important work with them, I was like counting productivity and like making sure people showed up to meetings on time. And, you know, uh, I, I hated it. And I was working a lot because now I'm managing two teams, palliative and hospice, and they both have completely different um, regulatory requirements. So I'm it was just a lot for me. Um, I don't know that it would be a lot for everybody, but for me it was because I wasn't doing my jam. You know, I wasn't talking to people in the way that really fed me. I was um, doing things that weren't my forte, like writing policies and procedures. (laughs) I think I've said that twice. You clearly understand how I feel about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so after 
this, this one moment, it was so funny. My boss had, we had a meeting and our boss was like, okay, this came from higher up. We have this um, form that we need to fill out. And it was something that I saw no value in. And usually I was like pretty much a team player, but in this moment I was like, no, I'm not doing that. My boss was like, well, it's just a form. I was like, I'm not doing it. It's a waste of time. And I have other things to do. We have a company that you know, we have, we have 70 positions open. We need to fill those positions. I don't want to fill out a form of what I see for my future career. Um, and she was kind of like, I, she was just, she was a really good person at, at working out the, um, getting you to kind of see the angle and calm down. And I was like, but I, I was, she was like, oh, come on. It's easy. You just have to do this, whatever. In that moment, I was like, I'm done. I, that is the straw. It was such a simple thing, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And when I said in this moment, I'm not doing this anymore. I smelled my father's pipe smoke. <laughs> well, what a coincidence. What a nice hallucination I can have to make me feel better about wanting to quit. Or, wow, my dad was there supporting me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. No. But we know what I want to think, right? <laughs> oh, I love these lessons. So you said a couple of takeaways that I got, and I don't know if these would be the takeaways you would give our listeners, but one of them really was tell others what you think. And then you said, believe what you want to believe and then don't waste your time, right? Mm-hmm. If there's something you love, if there's something you don't like, don't make a decision about it. Do you, if, if those were the three takeaways you had to give our listeners, do you agree with those three? Or are there, is there anything else you want them to walk away with? I think when I, the other thing is really important. And this, this is also why I left that job is because I was working all the time. And I was dreaming about work and I was thinking about it all the time. And I was sitting at my dining room table on Sunday, documenting and charting for seven hours. And my son was like, mom, I thought we were going to do something today. And I was like, I can't, I'm sorry. And that was the other motivating factor that I was spending so much time at work away from my family, because I have never, ever heard anybody at the end of their life say, I wish I spent more time at work. (laughs) I wish I spent Mm -hmm. more less time with my kids. Never. And I know that's a little trite, but it's true. It's true. Um, And so that was, that was one of the reasons I left because I was like, I need work-life balance. I need to leave work at the end of the day and leave work. Mm -hmm. And um, so I needed a break. And I, I, I left and I ended up getting a job in infectious disease research, which was like so different. <laughs> 10 minutes later, COVID comes down the pike. And I was like, I said, I needed a break. <laughs> oh no. Um, but here's the thing. And I'll, I'll make this really quick. And this, this leads to what I'm actually doing now, which is I, research is not my thing. It is not. It's numbers. It's data. It's paying attention to details. Those are not. Sadly, those are not where my strengths lie. And um, so, you know, I, I I still work there when they need me. You know, I work in the time is reported position. But um, and I did work there through COVID, and we did a lot of COVID research. And I was right there on the front lines. I was right directly face to face with mask and shield with COVID patients. Um, but, and it was important work. I don't ever want to diminish that the research for COVID was very important work. 
but I was never happy. I was miserable. I didn't enjoy the nature of the work. It wasn't like the way I, I thrive in, in work. Um, and so meanwhile, a couple of years ago, I started a book club. And the reason I started it is because I was reading this book that I thought was really cool. And I got this tidbit of information. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I need to pay attention to this. I'll, I'll, you know, I metaphorically put it in my back pocket to look at it later. And then later never happened. I would forget all about it. And so and it happened all the time when I was reading books. So I was like, I, if only I had somebody to talk to about these books, these concepts, then I wouldn't forget about them and they would have value. Right. And so I. um invited some people to join a book club and the book club, there were only four of us and it's a closed group now. And um, we were talking about, it, there were a couple rules. One, we all had to be present for the meeting. So if one of us couldn't make it, we'd just reschedule. Two, um, it had to be a book available on Audible or audio, um, an audio book because we're busy people you know mm -hmm. we can't always sit down with a book we got to read on the road or listen on the road and three um it has to be something related to personal growth self-help or non-fiction but with a message and um this book group this book club is pretty awesome i mean there have been meetings where we have gotten pretty vulnerable and have talked about some like heavy stuff and walked away with a new mindset, maybe not a new mindset, but a shift in the mindset we already had, either about ourselves or about each other. Um, I think the four of us have kind of bonded and, and you know, um, gotten to know each other in a way that we wouldn't have if it were just a regular book club. Um, and Tasha is a member, one of the four of this book club. <laughs> I am. Do you agree with that, Tasha? I, I do agree, yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And so I was like, I said to my husband one day, man, I wish I could do this for a living. I wish I could do book club and get paid for it. <laughs> and through a funny winding path, which they're always funny and winding, I ended up being like, well, how could I do something like this and be, you know, really credible? So I decided to look into life coaching, um, which led me to health coaching. And um, health coaching is a little different. I don't think they're they're too different at the very base. You know, they're about helping people reach goals, right? In either case, mm -hmm. um, but health health coaching is, of course, geared towards health goals. And so. I ended up getting into this. I got certified. I went through all the schooling. Um, this, the learning, by the way, is continuous. There's so much to learn. And I decided through that process that I actually um, was going to do it and go for it and make a business out of it. And so here are the things that came out of all this stuff we've been talking about. Um, I have become a health coach and I coach, I, like I said, I do two things. One is I work with people who have pre-diabetes. So there is, it is a massive number of people who have pre-diabetes and have no idea. This is the step before you get type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, if you catch it when they have pre-diabetes, you can make the habit and behavior changes that you need to so that you don't get type two diabetes. And it is, it is amazing. But here, do you think people are, um, if, if they're overweight, if that's what the issue is, do you think they're like that um, on accident? 
no, there's something that's that's getting in their way from moving forward to making changes. Changes are not easy. And when you're dealing with something like um, major habit changes, like like how you eat, that is huge. And it is very difficult to make those changes. So I work with people. I actually have a program that is very curated to type two diabetes. And I work with people to help them figure out what's getting in their way. Why are they not making these goals? And how do we start to make these goals very small, very slow to get them where they want? That's one thing I do. I love it, love it, love it. And I love it because I get to dive into my nurse cap. You know, not that I'm acting as a nurse, I'm acting as a health coach, but I've got all the knowledge. Right. I don't want to throw it out. And so I get to access it. And that's wonderful. The other thing I do is I offer courses based on a particular book. So it's like book club, except here there's like a syllabus and a curriculum and we, we kind of dive into the book and we accompany the book with coaching. So, you know, if there's a particular theme that comes up in this book, we kind of tear it apart and figure out how it applies to our life and our goals and what we can do to incorporate this concept into our life and, you know, build it slowly and gently, just like I do for the other health coaching. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's pretty awesome. I, I couldn't be happier because this also incorporates the part of work that I love the most. And this is what I thrive on, which is the getting deep, the yeah. getting inside, the figuring mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. The deep conversations. Yeah. Not everybody yeah. wants to have. Yeah. I yep. love that. Yeah. yeah. What a special, uh, you know, I know Tasha and I, you and I feel this way and obviously you do as well, but to have a coach is such an empowering thing. Mm -hmm. And we believe in it. We see the value in it because they do help guide you. A lot of times it's we need to be held accountable, but not just being held accountable. Because if that's all it is, when you're no longer there, they're going to fall yeah. back to their habits. Being mm -hmm. held accountable and changing those habits in small ways. Because if you try too much at once, it becomes very overwhelming and it's likely not going to stick. But if you do it slow and you're just there and it, you know, you do it for a while then suddenly you are changing behaviors. That's and you didn't even really know you were doing it, yeah. right? Like you make a behavior change and then six months later, you're like, oh, I didn't even realize this was a new behavior. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't hard or it wasn't the work I thought it was going to be. Yeah. It's Correct. different. Yeah. Correct. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. awesome. So awesome. So I feel like, I, I honestly feel like I can go on for another hour. Like I have so many <laughs> questions. I could too, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we can really get deep and into it, but I love your story. I really like that you were able to recognize when something did not make you happy and you made a change and you incorporated something you're passionate about, the book club into the coaching and you're merging that. A lot of what we hear, whether it's you know on social media or via email is individuals who just aren't happy and they're looking to make that change. And that's yeah. often very difficult to do. So my last question, well, I have two more questions for you, but my last question for you was if someone is in that same position, if they just know this isn't for me, I'm not happy, kind of feel stuck and not sure what to do, what would you suggest? What would you be your tidbit of information for those individuals? You know, it is hard. It is hard. Um, and I know a lot of people will end up staying in a job they're miserable at for mm -hmm. fear of, of not having it as good or 
as comfortable as where they are, even though they don't like the job. But I would say this, when it comes to career and profession, life is long. Mm -hmm. When it comes to love and relationships and doing the things that you really want to do in your heart, life is short. Yeah. So I would say, do what you can to get yourself into a position where you are able to access who you really are, what your gifts really are, and what makes you feel the most fulfilled. Because another thing I believe that I like to believe is that we are given kind of assignments when we come here into this life. And we have to kind of fulfill them. And our assignments can be as simple as find peace in yourself. Or it can be as uh, more complicated, like, you know, lead other people to peace and love. But I think those are kind of the core um, tasks we have to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're sitting at a job where you are miserable, you're missing out on the things that matter to you, you are um, just biding your time and going home and watching TV till you can go to bed and do it again tomorrow, you are not <laughs> honoring your responsibility on this planet. Yeah, yeah. It's harsh. I think that's a harsh statement, but. For yourself and everyone else, get off yeah. your arm. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. You but can sometimes, do it. yeah, you just had to hear it the way it is, right? Don't sugarcoat it. And that is the truth. I think there's what you said is such a beautiful statement when it comes to your career. Life is very long. When yeah. it comes to love and your relationships, it is short. Mm. Yeah, so that in itself can be a mantra and affirmation to repeat over and over. But yeah. my second question for you, or my second to, yeah, my last question would be, do you have a mantra and affirmation that you repeat on a regular basis? And if so, are you willing to share that with us? I do. And it actually relates to what we, what we were just talking about. I have two, neither of them are mine. I don't know where they came from. One I learned when I was probably 23 years old and I was like, Eureka. Um, and that is leap and the net will appear. Um, somebody said that in a meeting and it, it just very much soothed my impulsive soul. (laughs) I was like, yes. (laughs) And it always does. It always appears. Believe in it. It happens. That's one. The other one, very similar, is you got this girl. (laughs) (laughs) I say that to myself all the time. You got this. You got it. Sometimes it's in the middle of a spinning class, but you know. (laughs) Whenever you need it, it's always at. Love, love, love love that. Thank you. So I really, honestly, we may need to have you back on because I have too many more questions. Like I have lots and lots and lots of issues. Or we'll just have to have a little chit chat amongst the three of us. But this has been truly amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. If individuals want to find you, if they want to work with you, learn more about you, where can they go? Um, Carriagehousecoaching.com. That's my website. You can find me there. Um, There's contact information listed, or you can schedule a free consultation with me. Um, and that's about an hour of just us chatting and figuring out what you want to do. Also, um, on Instagram, Carriage House Coaching, LinkedIn, Facebook, all Carriage House Coaching. Thank you for listening to the Where Money Meets Soul podcast. We hope you're feeling inspired to take control of your finances, create balance, and live your best life. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a review. 
And if you know anyone else who would benefit from this content, spread the love by taking a snapshot of this podcast, sharing on social media, and tagging In the Life of Zen. And stay tuned for more from In the Life of Zen. Visit us at inthelifeofzen.com and follow us on social media at In the Life of Zen.